<clears throat> Good morning and welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Um, I want you to know uh, I have the utmost respect for our lead pastor, Matt Smith, but I will tell you that I began to question his reasoning when he willingly and knowingly strapped a microphone to a sanguine melancholy extrovert and put her on a platform and said, share your story, because this can go wrong so many ways. I'm going to try and reel it in. I'm going to do my best. Um, the gauntlet has been thrown down to show baby pictures, and I, I am not one to bow, back away from a challenge, so I thought I would share a couple pictures with you this morning. Um, this is my personal favorite baby picture of me of all time. I was a wanderer even in my crib. So let me show you what the other half of that picture looks like. Thank you. Now the next picture I'm going to show you is the reason that my brothers tormented me so, and you'll understand when you see it. If that isn't a picture of entitlement, I don't know what is. <laughs> And I think if I had to go to court to sue my brothers for all the torment that they put me through, the, the attorney would only have to show that picture and the jury would acquit them right then and there. Because, well, they were nine years, they're nine years older than me. And so for nine years, they had sole possession of the house, the toys, the mom, the dad, the whole deal. And then that dropped into their lap. So let's stop for a minute and pray, please. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you so much for this Sabbath and this opportunity. And Lord, I pray that, um, that you won't allow me to go down any rabbit holes, that you, there will be no, no missteps or holes in what I'm about to say, but rather that every word will be representative of the message that you want presented. And Father, as always, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you. In your name we pray, amen. We were in our ladies' book club, and um, we were having a discussion about suffering, and Barb McCoy, Pastor Barb, shared Joshua 3 and 4 and the story of crossing the Jordan. And when she told it, it went, it clicked for me, and I said, I, I, I've got to have that. That's... That is the verse, the scripture that I'm looking for for my sermon today. And I am bringing this up and expressing that to you because I want to encourage you, please join a small group. I am a member of two small groups and I could not live without those people. They have helped me through hard times. And I'm so grateful for that. Please join a group. If you don't have a, a group to join, make one, create one, small groups. But we're going to read Joshua 3 and 4, and as an editor, I've gone through and taken out some things. It's not a seamless editing job, but if you'll bear with me, it makes it a little shorter for the purposes of our sermon today. So starting with chapter 3, verse 2, it says, after three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people, when you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. 
Tell the priests, oh, I think I got lost here. Home. Then you will know which way to go, since you've never been this way before. Important words. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. See, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest, yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho, and the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on the dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. Moving to chapter 4. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing, and carry them over with you, and put them down at a place where you stay tonight. Joshua set up the twelve stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. And as soon as all of them had crossed, the Ark of the Lord and the priests came to the other side while the people watched. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the twelve stones they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their parents, What do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. And he did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful, and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. Now, there's two things that popped out to me from this story. And the first one was that the Ark of the Covenant and the presence of God went before the people. And it stopped in the deepest part, the middle, the scariest part. It stopped so that all of the people would walk past and he, God would be present with them in that moment. And when they had crossed, the Ark of the Covenant came behind them. God goes before us, He stands with us, and He goes behind us. Psalm 139 verse 5 says this, it says, You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Now I looked up the definition of hem. And basically, it's you take a cloth and you roll it up and you sew it so that it doesn't fray. And I'm thinking, Lord, thank you. I don't want to fray. He takes me before and after. And I see this big hand of God with this celestial needle. And it's doing a whip stitch as he hems me in before and behind. I'm so grateful for that. The second thing is that they built a monument. And that monument was there so that anybody that came after would see it and say, wow, remember? They crossed on dry land. And the Ark of the Covenant was with them all the way. And it's so the people that would pass that, if their faith was weak, they could borrow the faith of that story. They could borrow it and it would see them through. 
Now, there's a modern monument that was built that I've had the privilege of visiting, and it's called the Birkenkopf. It's in Stuttgart, Germany. We Americans called it Rubble Hill, and the reason that we did is because it was made from the rubble of the war. This is, from, this is from 1954 when they first started building it. This is 1,677 feet taller than anywhere near it in Stuttgart. It's over 800 feet higher than the highest point in city center. And it is made of 1.5 million cubic feet of the destruction from the war. 45% of Stuttgart was destroyed by Allied bombs. And that is the monument that stands. And it stands to attest to the fact that war is not the way they want to go next time. That's not what we want to do. But it also stands for the resiliency of the people that out of destruction, they have made a monument to what they want for the future. Now, I want to share some monuments with you. I want to share two, two monuments that are mine that God has helped me build. And this first one has to do with backpacking around Europe. I was 19 years old. You said 20, 21 in your 20s is when you start being financially responsible. I was not there yet. It was like, strap that backpack on me and let me go. This isn't a really good picture, but the girl in the front to your left, that is me in my brown corduroy overalls that I wore all over Europe. And uh, I want you to know that when you have to choose and you're backpacking and you have to choose between an extra supply of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches or an extra pair of jeans, it's a no-brainer. You're going with the PBJ. It's the truth. So one pair of pants, wore them all over Europe. But that's my cousins went with me, and Linda Wildman is up in the back. She's in the girl. Some of you may know Linda Wildman. She was my roommate at Andrews. We all went backpacking around Europe in the summer of 77. And we went to Austria and Germany and Switzerland and France. And one time we went to England. I wanted to take them there because I had gone to school in England when I was much younger. We got to London and we traveled this way throughout all of Europe. We didn't call ahead and make reservations. You went to the hostel door, you rang the bell, and if they had room, you got a room. Well, we didn't have any trouble anywhere we went. We got a room until we went to London. And when we got to London, there was something going on with the royal family that, of course, we hadn't checked out. And there was no room at the inn, no room at the hostels. There were no hotels that were vacant. There was no place that we could go and sleep. So 10 o'clock at night, here we are, no place to stay. We went to Hyde Park, which is in downtown London pulled out our sleeping bags, climbed in, and went to sleep. Well, I woke up at sunrise to somebody kicking me, and I thought it was my cousin Doug, and I'm like, Doug, stop! And he said, I don't know what you're talking about. So I pulled my sleeping bag off of my head, and here are standing two British bobbies with their hats and their blue uniforms and their, and their bully clubs, billy, whatever, the sticks. And they're kicking me to get us awake. And they're going to arrest us. And so we talked to them. They realized we weren't vagrant. They realized that we were in trouble. And they said, we'll let you go with a warning. 
but if we find you here tomorrow night, we will provide accommodations for you. <laughs> we took them seriously. Now, my parents have taught me, because I've traveled since I was 13 years old, I've traveled by myself, and uh, my parents have always taught me if you get in trouble when you're traveling overseas, you have one of two things. <clears throat> Excuse me. Either find an American or find a Seventh-day Adventist. Well, we didn't get any help from the Americans, so we did the next best thing that we could do. We opened up at one of those red um, phone booths, we opened up a phone book and we did the holy finger drop method. I'm sure you're familiar with it. We sat, we prayed. When we were done, I closed my eyes and I did this to figure out which church to go to because there were so many to choose from. So we called the number where the finger fell and it rang and it rang and it rang and it rang and I was just about to give up hope when someone breathlessly answered the phone, hello? And I said, hi, we're Americans backpacking. We're Seventh-day Adventists. We don't know where to go. We need a place to sleep. Would you please let us sleep in your fellowship hall? And the man was so gracious and he said, come to the church. Come to the church, we'll figure it out. Now, I'll be honest with you, the finger drop method doesn't take into account how far the place you are when you drop the finger is <laughs> to the place where the church is. And those people had to wait hours for us to get there on a Friday night, and they waited so patiently and so kindly. They were so nice. By the time we got there, they had divided us up and found families to take us home. Now my cousin Cheryl and I went home with the Greens, Mr. and Mrs. Green and their daughter Lorella. And in hindsight, they could not have been much older than me. But in my mind, they had a kid, they were married, they were established, you know. They were old people. <clears throat> The next Sabbath, the next morning was Sabbath, and they wanted us to go to church, and they had us sit up in the very front row so that they could introduce us. So we put on our Sabbath clothes, uh, which was clean underwear, and <laughs> I will refer you back to the peanut butter and jelly story. So we went, and we stood up, and we met the, uh, the whole church, and when we were done, the Greens asked us, would you all like to come home with us? And we said, yes, we would really prefer to do that. We like to be together. So we went home with them. They let us stay with them one more night. And Mrs. Green, bless her heart, stayed up all night Saturday night making us savory pies so that we would have food to eat on the train to our next destination. They were just lovely people. Their daughter, Lorella, was sitting at the, at the breakfast table and her, her mother said, Lorella, eat your food. And Lorella was sitting there playing with it and she took her hand and she reached down and picked up her spoon like this. And when she put her hand up, of course it clattered to the floor. And she says, oh, mommy, I can't eat anymore. My hand is tired. <laughs> so that's like our family joke now. You know, if there's something that we come up to that we don't want to do, I'm sorry, I can't do it. My hand is tired. <laughs> they were lovely people. So my monument was a time there where God, you know, he, he could have blinked and winked and looked away, but he didn't. 
He knew we were foolish. He knew that we had the hubris of youth, that we were naive, and yet he found us a place to stay, not only where we would be safe, but where we would be taken care of very, very well. And I'm so grateful for that. My second monument is a little different. Gary and I, after we got married and had kids, we always prayed that we would be able to work in ministry full time. This is what we wanted to do. He was an adolescent psychiatric nurse at, at, which is now Advent Health, back then Florida Hospital. And we really wanted to be in a position where we could share the gospel. Gary wanted to be a boys dean. So he got a calling to go up to Lorbrook School in Dayton, Tennessee, and we went up there for six years, and he was a wonderful dean. <clears throat> it was time to move on for our girls, so we went to Highland View Academy, where he was a dean there for another 12 years or so. And while we were there, at both of those jobs, you know, his job is secure. I was like the pastor's wife they were trying to find a job for kind of thing. And they moved me from job to job to job. In fact, in one year, I had three different jobs. And I came home and I prayed and I said, Lord, please stop. Please, you know, what is wrong with me that you can't put me someplace and let me just have one job? I don't, I don't want all these different jobs. I would just learn a job and boom, I'd be moved on to something else. Well, if you've ever worked in education, you know that this is a truism. And that is, is that every year has its own personality. The teachers change it, the kids that attend change it, the administration changes it. Every year has its own personality. And I got to the point that my vision of education and the principal's vision of education were not in sync. And I knew that I needed to let go of that job and I needed to go find something else. And that was hard to do. Working in an education is a blessing. Working in boarding schools is really cool. But I let it go, and I moved on, and I waited. I didn't have a job. I didn't know what I was going to do. And so I was praying, and the Review and Herald was close by, and I had always thought it would be really neat to work at the Review and Herald, not because I was convicted about publishing, but because it's a, a what do you call it, a stalwart representation of the church. That's not the words I'm looking for, but that'll work. It was, a, it was a good place where I could be in ministry. So I applied, and I went in to interview for a job, and the director told me, he said, I want you to know straight up front that you are not going to have everything that we need for this job, and you're going to come into it, and you're going to need to learn a lot. There's going to be a steep learning curve for you. So just be aware of that. We're going to go ahead and hire you. But these are the things that you will need to do, the skill set you will need to have for this job. Every single thing that he listed off, I had learned at every one of those jobs I had been pushed to. God went before me. He went before me. Now, as I was working at the Review, I started to get a glimpse of the people that worked there and how the mission of publishing fit into them. So Pastor Matt shared in his sermon that he got his calling through literature evangelism. And in literature evangelism, they use the MAGA books. So I'm going to use that as an example. The MAGA book would come in. The, the 
it would come into the editorial department and it would be edited. And as it was edited, everybody in the department would come together and pray over that book. And then it would go to design and everybody in the design department would pray over that book. And then it would go to the printing press. And as those pages went through the printing press, the men that operated it would stand there and pray for the hands that would touch the pages of that book for the literature evangelists that would carry it and for the people that would buy it. They would pray that God's gospel would be shared and that people would know Jesus through this printed word. It would go from there to where they would pack it up in the, in the boxes. And as those men would pack it in the pallets, as they trimmed it and packed it, they would pray over those books and for the people that they would reach. And then it would go to the dock to be shipped away. And as the truck would pull away, those people, men and women, would stand there and pray over that truck as it pulled away. Pray for the driver, pray for the people, pray for the stores, pray for anyone that would come in contact with that book. This wasn't just a ministry, it was a legacy. And it was one they took very, very seriously and I began to fall in love with it too. So working there was such a privilege and such a joy. Now when I first started working there, they told me that one of my primary jobs was to build a relationship with the North American Division. The children's ministries director at that time we didn't have a real good relationship, and since everything I did was children's ministries, children's ministries magazines, and vacation Bible school programs, and Sabbath school curriculum, since all of that was under my purview, they encouraged me to get to know the NAD director. And there was a new director coming in, and this is a picture of her. Her name is Phyllis Washington. Now, Phyllis is my mentor and one of my best friends. She came from a, a career in social security. So where I had worked in ministry and for Adventist institutions, she kind of parachuted in with information from the world work. And so she and I were really good together because I could bring the nuances of working in church politics and she would bring the balance of, but maybe this is a better way to do it. And we would problem solve and come up with ways to deal with things that came along our way. And she taught me, through the example of the things that she said, I realized that I was looking at the world through binoculars, but I had them backwards. My religious certitude had given me a very, very narrow view. And every situation we came into, and we traveled together and would stay up late at night talking, every conversation we had, whether it was current politics, or whether it was church issues, or whether it was family issues, always, always, always she would bring me back to, no Candy, not where are you in this situation, where is God? Where is God? Where is His grace? When you look through that lens of grace, everything changes. <clears throat> so she was with me, <clears throat> excuse me, at about eight years into working at the Review, and we had, we had gotten a really solid friendship. And suddenly rumors started coming. Rumors that the Review and Herald was going to close. Now, rumors are rumors. 
But when Ted Wilson and other GC officials and other NAD officials showed up for Monday morning chapels, we knew that this was a reality. And I'm not here to debate the right or wrong of it, but I do want to share with you feelings. Because what happened is these workers, some of them were families that where three generations worked at the review, suddenly found themselves in the situation that I was in, which is your calling no longer exists. Your ministry is no longer available to you. It was so hard to see these people that I had come to really care for not be able to grieve because in grieving and showing sadness, they were afraid that it represented a lack of faith and they struggled with this. <clears throat> As the review closure was coming, and it was a two-year process, they, and, and a painful two years, as it was coming to a close, they chose 10 employees to go to the GC to be able to speak for the employees. I was one of those people. So I was one of those delegates that was chosen. And I didn't speak. And the reason that I didn't is because as I sat there and listened to other people stand up and say what they had to say, I heard the chatter of all of the people around me all of the dignitaries of the Adventist Church, all of the people that I watched on Sabbath morning, all of the people that I respected, and the things they said were so hurtful because their minds were made up. And I came home from that meeting and I told my husband, I will never step foot in an Adventist Church again. There is an author by the name of Lena Abu Jamra. Lena is a, a, an emergency room physician, but she's written wonderful books. The, her most recent book is called Fractured Faith, Finding Your Way Back to God in an Age of Deconstruction. And in this book, she shares her crisis of faith. And it's very similar to my crisis of faith that I was in in that moment. And this is one of the quotes that she says, when our vision is disrupted by our pain, it is God's grace that restores our vision for who He is and what He longs to accomplish in us. It was as if Phyllis was right there when I read those words. Where is God in this? Where is His grace? Not you. She also goes on to say that I've learned that what I see as massive failure in my life, God sees as a massive opportunity to redirect my calling. When I think of my two monuments, when I think of the first one, you know, I imagine it looks like this. I imagine it's smooth, it's balanced, that it's kind of quizzical, that when people metaphorically walk past it, that they maybe giggle or dance or, or show joy for the sheer joy that God would care enough about teenagers in a foreign land, but this new monument that I was beginning to build was made of this. It was made of shards and rubble because there was a deconstruction in the process. There was a disillusionment that was present. So what did, what's the rest of the story? I went to Phyllis and I went to my husband. And, and they were both encouraging me. And they said, now that you can do anything, what do you want to do? 
And I said, I desperately want to be available to walk with people when they find themselves in the position where their faith is not something that will shore them up. I want to walk with people and help them find their way and help them know that grieving and sadness is okay. It doesn't mean a loss of faith. I want to be there to be a help, to be a support. I want to be a counselor. <laughs> and they said, do it. So at 58 years of age, I went back to school and got my master's in counseling. At the same time, I got a call from my mom and dad. Both of them separately called me and they said, it's time. We need support. We don't need care. We need support. And we would like you to come down and take care of us. So I talked to Gary. And we made the arrangements for me to come down. And don't you know, if you know anything about my parents at all, Sandy and Betty Graves, then you will know that on Sabbath morning, they are at church. So suddenly, I had a dilemma. <laughs> I made a proclamation. And now I'm finding myself having to come to church every Sunday. Not only church, I have to go to Sabbath school too. <laughs> I sat right there in that pew for one year, and every Sabbath I wept. I wept. I didn't want to be here. It hurt. It hurt. And it was so difficult. But you know what? God goes before us. God stays with us. And he is ready to come behind. And in that pew right there, I processed all my pain. And I processed all my disillusionment. And I realized that God's grace is greater and his calling is sure. Don't think for a minute it was easy or that it was fast, but God is faithful. He is so, so faithful. We've been sharing our stories with you because, number one, we want you to be able to find your story of faith. But the other reason we, we share our stories is so that when other people's faith is not strong, they can borrow, borrow ours, and they can hold on to it, and it can bring them through. So my stories, one is whimsical, and one, my monument, is probably not one people want to get too close to. Maybe they're somber in my mind's eye when they walk past it, and reverent because they realize that God is present in a state of hurt. But I want you to know that if your faith is not strong, you can borrow our stories. And if you don't know what your calling is, you can borrow our stories until you find your own voice. More than anything, we want you to know that God is faithful. He hems us from the front and from behind. He goes before us, he stands with us, and he comes after us. So if you find yourself in that state, Please, please feel free with my story 
borrow mine.